podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project podcast. Today's guest on the show is Oscar Johansson. Oscar, who you probably follow on Instagram, he's at Oscar J, is leading the charge right now in downwinding and in time on foil prone. He absolutely rips. He's insane prone surfing, but what he's completely blowing everyone else away at right now is his ability to stay up on foil. Right now, I think his record is two hours and 43 minutes, which is just mind-boggling to me to think about pumping around prone for that long. He's an absolute legend. What he's doing downwind right now, what he did on the race scene this year is incredibly inspirational. And he's just a good dude. You know, I got to to catch up with him while we were out in Hood River and I've been trying to get him on the show for a while. It hasn't lined up and it finally has. And so just excited to do it. So I think you guys are going to love this conversation, learning from Oscar, who is incredibly articulate. He's smart, puts a lot of time, dedication, energy mentally into foiling, helping with designs at Armstrong, um, figuring out how to plot, you know, the downwind runs as they're searching new coasts because he is a geospatial engineer in his day job. So it's pretty cool. So before we dive in, a couple notes. We recorded this about a week ago and I was at the beginning of just a gnarly flu and just kept me out of the water. I have not been back in the water yet. It's like I never give myself a week out of the water, generally sending all the time. And I have to say, in a way, it feels kind of good. Like my body feels really good right now. All that stuff is healed. Hopefully elbows feeling good, back, legs. I'm not shaking when I walk down the stairs. I don't know if you guys have that, but you know, my legs are generally so tired all the time that we live in a townhouse and have a couple flights of stairs. And in the mornings when I'm walking downstairs, I feel my legs like shaking, start to think something's wrong with me. It's not, it's just overtraining constantly. So all that's gone. So I'm ready to send again, but now we got this gnarly cold front. Um, if you're not on the forum, go check out the forum. You know, lots of people posting, super active community there, forum.progressionproject.com. And if you haven't checked out the Quiver Killer uh, slash Enigma, it's going to be released as the Quiver Killer for Unifoil and the Enigma with Portal Boards. Uh, check out Mike or I at Flyline Production or at Progression Project Instagrams and check out the mid-links that we're doing because this board's kind of changed the way that I'm approaching foiling right now. You know, I absolutely love prone and small boards, but man, the mid-length is addicting. You know, the ease of paddle. And as we approach the winter right now, I am more psyched going into a winter than I have been just because of, we have a lot bigger surf during the winter and the ease of getting into waves and the ease of paddling through a lineup is game-changing. And when you're starting a run with just, you know, one paddle in and zero cardio, that's really nice, especially when you're in a wetsuit. So um, frothing on that, you know, Portal just did a batch and we sold out right away. So I think we're probably four or five weeks out from the next batch. But if you're interested, shoot Mike or I a DM. All right. With that, let's dive in to the podcast. Oscar Johansson, absolute frother. I love this conversation and enjoy. Oscar, what's up, man? 
Ah, oh, man, stoked to be here. We're both a little under the weather. What's <laughs> yeah. happening? We were just talking for a minute before hopping on the rec- recording, and I've got the flu, came down with it last night really bad, and I guess you had it for three days getting over it right now? Yeah, yeah, I've just been super sinusy, coffee, energy levels low. It's been, yeah, honestly, since COVID, this is the worst thing I've had, so this thing's pretty brutal. Oh, man. I'm I'm really hoping that this is not COVID for me just because I don't want to have to deal with the aftermath of the slow build back into doing awesome stuff. Um, yeah, exactly. Testing negative, knock on wood. <laughs> we need to get over this stuff, man. Oh, Let's talk. I just want to get back to being healthy. Yeah. And actually, you know what? I was talking to my wife this morning at nine after getting two hours of sleep last night. And there's something really beautiful about getting really sick in that when you do feel better again, you don't realize how good it is to feel great, right? Oh, you appreciate it so much more. I don't know what it is. You come out of you like, oh, I can get in the water. I feel energetic. And it's like yep. all of a sudden you just appreciate getting out and doing things. It's a good reset almost. Yeah, I usually try to use it for an inflection point too. Generally, after I get sick for a few days, my diet, everything I'm doing, the way I work out gets really good for <laughs> the next three or four months. So <laughs> try to keep that then going. Back to, back to normal straight after that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what's up, man? It was super good to get to meet you while we were out in Hood. That was awesome to watch you foil live. Oh, man, that was such, it's such a good time, like those sorts of events, like bringing all the foilers together and it's so many guys like you'd be walking down go to the hat tree and it's oh there's pedigo there's all these weird just like shit i've seen you on instagram for so long and you get to have a session together and it was such a good time hood river is such an epicenter of just froth almost like you show up at the hat tree there's 20 guys out just doing laps like learning to suck downwind there's god 200 wingers out there's just the shuttles guys driving up further doing longer downwind runs like it's just a good vibe and i think yeah the hood river i think just because of that awsi event like it's so focused on one week where everyone's there and i think regardless of the conditions it's just a good time meeting everyone yeah that was our experience my, my only regret we talked about it with jeremy on the pod was just that there wasn't more time to just hang out with everybody. I think next year I really want to go back and I'd love to throw like a big barbecue for everyone one night or something. Yeah. Just get everyone together and just talk talk shit for a few hours or whatever. That'd be awesome. That's it. And I think because you're all, everyone's getting dragged in different directions with various commitments and it's sort yep. of, there's an event for three days in the middle and you've got a couple days either side that's set up, packed. There's all that going on with the event. So you have to... Yeah, trying to organize just to do a run with someone becomes a logistical nightmare. You're like, oh, I think I got a window here. And it's, yeah, it becomes almost a little bit like work, but it'd be so good to just have everyone there for a week. No event, just hanging out. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Have a barbecue, chat gear, and that'd be a good time. Yeah. So what have you been up to lately? Since, since Hood, what have you been doing? Since Hood, so we went over to France pretty quickly after Hood, which was the French Downwind Championship. I didn't have it on my radar. It was at Hood that we were sort of talking with Armstrong and they were like, oh, this French event's going on. Mateo's heading over for it. Do you want to head over as well? And I was like, I hadn't really heard about it at that stage. So I was a little nervous going into it because I knew I wasn't in the best shape and I hadn't been really preparing for any downwind races. So... That was our next adventure. So me and Matteo were over in France for two weeks up in the northwest coast, which was, I mean, man, France just has it 
dial, the food, the down, like it's a little cold. So if you're not used to pe- putting on a wetsuit, it was a little, it was a little brutal. But apart from that, man, the conditions they get over there is insane. Like world-class downwind conditions. And then you've just got good food, super cheap, which was interesting, like really cheap food. But just the crew over there, it was such a good scene and such a good vibe amongst everyone. How did you do in the races? I think you did well, right? Yeah, did well. Got second overall, which was awesome. Yeah. So there was it was an interesting format. So it was three days of racing each day. And it's quite a flex. It's like the location's flexible. So we had three days of racing and each day was one downwind run. And it varied from, I think the shortest one might have been 12 kilometers up to about 20. So on the shorter end, but the first two days were... They were inside a bay or a river, so they were flat water, also like enclosed water runs, so just wind mm-hmm. swell and wind shot, which was, which was a little tricky. I mean, it wasn't what we were anticipating. I mean, especially looking at the forecast, it looked like it was going to be nuking out in the ocean. And it was a little, like there was big swells too, but they were just worried about uh, safety as well as they didn't have boats that they thought could handle that size swell and wind. Which, like, from an organization standpoint, like, I get it. Like, there are, they've got different considerations. We're just looking at it going, that looks psycho. Like, I just want to go and downwind in that. But it's sort of then you got to mix in all the safety, insurance. they got things with Coast Guard. There's all that sort of stuff going on. So, I got their decision in the end, but it was a little bit of a bummer. It definitely would have been, oh, an insane race to be out in the ocean on those days. But... In the end, it was a bit of a pump fest and, I mean, flat water, downwinding. I don't, have you done any enclosed water runs? I don't know if you'd consider what we do. We have kind of like a mini hood here where we get opposing current and wind in an inlet. And, I mean, that can go really good. It can be it can be Richter when that yeah. goes. So I don't know if that's the same thing as like a, a bay run or a lake run. Yeah, so I probably would be. I mean, it's, I guess the same similar to hood, like where... Yeah. All your swells, like there's one swell and it's all yep. moving at the same speed. So like from yep. a racing standpoint, it's the only way to move forward is to pump through them. And mm-hmm. it's sort of, it removes a lot of that skill and like the, your line choice, when to move and like reading the ocean that's taken out because everything's, there's one swell, it's all organized. It's just really a fitness battle. Right. Um, so it becomes a different race. And that's where I always lean towards racing in the ocean just because... I mean, that's, to me, that's what it's about. Like finding that, the different energies, trying to find a rhythm between the different swells and the most efficient line or the fastest line. And it's such a, I guess, a creative line. Whereas the the downwinding in the river was just, yeah, it was a pump fest. So yeah. it was a little bit of a bummer, but I mean, yeah, like um, it went to my strengths. Yeah, I probably... And better on the fitness end of things. So it did lean to my strengths and yeah, ended up taking second overall, which I was stoked with. But just good to see, like we had like with the whole event, like everyone stays in the same accommodation. Like they just rent they rent, rented two big houses and everyone just got put in there for three or four days. So it was just really good to have a day, all come back together, chat about gear, conditions, how the day unfolded, and everyone was helping each other. So it was a really good atmosphere and vibe around the whole event. Like we were all just having dinners together. Like we're all just helping each other, like with gear choices. And there was a lot to just learn and just 
yeah, especially in the whole community side of things, it was such a good event. So, yeah, I'm super glad I ended up going over. How many foilers were there? Oh, I think it was close to 70 in the race. Maybe high 60s. So, it was That's a big rad. turnout. Yeah, and from all over, like Tahitians, Hawaiians, Aussies. It was just people from all over, which was so good to see. The How's the scene in Europe for downwinding? Is that taken on the same way that it has in Hawaii and Australia? We were talking about this while we are over there. Like, it's interesting seeing how many different, like, where the backgrounds come from. Like, you go to Hawaii, and I think, I don't know if it's the canoe paddling. Like, they they got much more of that, like, that open kind of open ocean downwinding already in them. It's a water and they're just culture. looking. Yeah, that, exactly. It's that yeah. waterman culture. And so then you go to Europe, and especially in France, they've got a really big sup racing culture. Mm. It's massive over there. And it's one of the last frontiers. I think sup racing definitely seems to be on the decline. I don't know. That's my, I, I don't come from any sup backgrounds, but it seems to be the, the message everyone's talking about. Those guys in Europe coming from that sup racing background, they're much more on the kind of flat water. They're a little bit, a little bit more hesitant to go out into the wild, just open ocean. They're a little bit more kind of enclosed waters and just very like strong paddlers, super fit guys and really trained methodically for it. Mm. And then the Aussies, I don't know about the Aussies are just anything goes. We're just like, yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah, just go. And we just make it work. Let's say that we don't have a strong history i guess in all this sort of like we have a strong like surf lifesaving racing mm-hmm. but i i don't know too much about our downwinding culture and i, I just feels like it is one of those any run it doesn't matter if it's in a bay run a lake it's in the ocean open ocean whatever it is it's just like yeah let's just go and do it there's sort of a it doesn't have to be good we just go after it and that's where you just see everyone's background coming together and the the french and the euros are definitely a little on the safety side of things Definitely a bit more cautious to go out into wild oceans, whereas the Hawaiians, like that waterman culture, those guys, they know gnarly seas. They know how to deal with it. They've got, they are some of the best watermen in the world. So it's just a very different approach to downwinding. But yeah, there's just so many people getting into it. We did a couple of days with one of the local stores and it was just like 20 guys just show up to just have a go at flat water paddle ups and like never, never even tried to foil or foil before and like guys getting really close as well. It was, there's just so many people wanting to get into it. So cool. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of downwind is comfort being out in the ocean. And I know that was the, I mean, I was the first guy to start sending offshore here and it was an incremental thing, like slowly moving out and you feeling uncomfortable all the time. I think if you don't have that, if you haven't been an open ocean canoe paddler or if you haven't done a lot of open ocean swimming you do with lifeguard training all that there is a, a bit of just uncertainty and fear of the unknown and, and what you're getting yourself into and i th- actually think in our community here there are a lot of guys that should be sending downwind and you know who you are you're going to listen to this podcast and you know who you are and they don't want to paddle out to do it they've got the boards and they just don't do it yet and it's time. So sorry, I, I just wanted to put <laughs> oh, that dude. in there for them. Mate, I, I, I've got the, I've got plenty of guys around here, Sean in particular, who just you got to throw them out under the bus a little. <laughs> you just got to get out there. And I think I, I did it as well. Like where when I started downwinding, so I'm a little bit further south of Sydney, like three hours. So 
when I was getting into it, there was like friends like Zane, James, Casey, like they were the kind of guys in Perth really pushing it. But they were just like, I'm not going to drive three hours up to Sydney just to do a run with them. So I was like, all right, I've got no one else to downwind with. What's on, what's on offer? What can I try? What can I do? And like, I was lucky Zane took me out on one run right at the beginning. And it was just, it was in the bay. Like it was a good kind of learning run. But after that, it was like, all right, you got to go into the open ocean. And I don't have a, a canoe or paddling background. Like I'm not used to open ocean. And that's where it was, dude. It was scary to do your first run, to be kilometers offshore. The only thing that's going through your mind is shark. It's, I swear <laughs> to God, anytime you come down, you look down and it's that deep blue. Man, I get onto my board so quick. I'm just yeah. so horrified <laughs> of that shit. And it's, yeah. man, that's the fastest you'll ever see someone move. When you fall off your first <laughs> yeah. time out wide, how quickly you just fucking, where's the board? Jump back on. Oh, yep. shit. Yeah. But, uh- a couple of my first ones, I didn't even worry about the paddle. I just got back up on the board, got on my knees, and then I was like, all right, where's my paddle? Where's my hat? Exactly. Oh, yeah. Man. And but it's, I, it's thrilling, though. Like, that <clears throat> fear of the kind, that's what makes it, I think that kind of is one of the appeals as well to downwinding, like that fear of just being out wide, self-sufficient, you've got no motor, there's no nothing. It's just you and, like, your skill, how much time you've put into it is whether or not you'll make it. Yep. And there's something in that. There's yeah. There's something about downwinding that just is so attractive. And I think everyone, anyone who's into foiling, looks at downwinding and is yeah, that's that's the shit. Yep. I think a lot of it has to do with the sense of adventure, and in the the cultures that we live in. I felt a lot of adventure when we lived in Costa Rica. And we lived 12 miles from the nearest paved road, and you were out there by yourself, and I loved that. And I don't feel that here living in Jacksonville, Florida, which is a pretty big city, like a pretty big beach area. But you feel it on a downwind run. And I think that's cool. There's not a lot of times when you just get to be out really amidst the the elements. And even if you go with people, you're on your own. And yeah, it's like, here's A to B. This is my goal. I'm going to try to get there and see what happens. No matter what happens, it's going to be an adventure, generally speaking. Yeah. Oh, totally. And it is that we've been talking about it with a couple of the boys here and we spent, we all came from a surfing background and a lot of those memorable sessions were those, you, maybe you picked a wave and it was like, it's a two hour walk. It's a big hike to get in there. There's all that kind of, I guess that, so that kind of brings in that sense of adventure, but downwinding, it's always an adventure. And that's the thing with surfing. It's, it's the adventure to get to the location, but once you're there, it's still, I guess, just surfing. But downwinding, it's the whole time while you're actually doing it. It's all, you go around a headland and all of a sudden there's this weird reverb. There's a reef you didn't know that was a bommie that's way offshore and you can get all this refraction. There's so much, it's always changing. Like you never know what's coming around the next headland. And especially when you're trying new runs, like the amount of times that we just, you know, if you go into a new location, you're just staring at Google Maps and windy and be like, all right, wind's going this way. What's our options? And you go, oh, this looks like an epic downwind run. And then you start looking at it on Google Maps and you're like, all right, shit, I don't, like these look like cliffs. I don't even know how we're going to get down to the water. And you just, you spend hours like scouring going like, all right, I think I can, we can get in here. It'll be a one kilometer paddle. We should be good from there. And all that side of it, man, that just brings the whole adventure into the sport. And I think that's, to me, that's what's so addicting to it. And I just want to, I keep doing it anywhere I go. I'm just staring at Google Maps. I'm like, oh, would we be out of downwind here? What would that be like? And just pioneering and exploring new runs. And man, it's so epic. 
Yeah, I, that's the one thing that we do not have is the complicated coastline. We've got straight sand beaches, and your runs are always semi, kind of like working your way out to sea. We don't get that scenery or the complexity that that you guys are getting, which I'm jealous of. And I'm, so, what I was going to say before is, I think that I would feel that insecurity and fear if I went to do some of your runs because we're never out multiple kilometers out in the middle of the ocean. You pick your line. Usually it's like a quarter to a half mile out. You just stay on that line. Every once in a while you work. Yeah. I feel that though when we send the prone ones out because we'll do the, the same runs and work our way out to that quarter, half mile out on prone. And that feels really far out when you're out there prone. But Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. We had a, which was probably my most memorable run. We did a, it's about 85 kilometers. I did with Zane Westwood and Jeremy Wilmot. And it was just a run that we, it made sense. It was a, a headland that sticks way out and it was just a dead straight line back to where I live. And, but the, the main issue was the cutout. So if you went from like right on the cliff line all the way to the finish, like we were looking at 13, 13 kilometers offshore. Oh but the goodness. problem is by the time we started the run, you move out a little, you get offshore. So like by the time, like me and Zane came down and had lunch and we're waiting for Jeremy and we were 15 kilometers offshore. And it's to the point where like you, you can't see the sand on the shoreline. You can see the the mountains behind and the outline of that. But that was a weird, that was eerie. But it was also like we were just sitting out there like it was any other run, having a bite to eat and just waiting. And it, it felt comfortable, which was interesting, but it was a long way out. It was, that was, yeah, that was That's a real boring. adventure. That one, that one spooked me a little bit at the same time, just, Man, it was good. I wonder really, once you're past a certain amount offshore, if it matters if you're another 10 miles. I mean, if you need to be rescued, it's a boat coming to get you or a helicopter, right? Like, Yeah, exactly. What are you doing for us? Sorry? I was going to say, what are you doing for safety on those? You guys bring in like an EPIRB or like a marine radio if in case something happens offshore? I mean, that's the big consideration, right? It's time for help if something should happen. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so we took marine radios with us, mm -hmm. which was interesting how useless they were. It was pretty big, so like it was good wind, probably 20 knots and good swell running with it. But the problem was once you're on foil, like you're in, you're in troughs and stuff. So like we were barely getting a kilometer range out of the radio and they were like, in terms of the marine kind of handheld radios, these were like pretty top of the line. I think like maybe second best you could get. But we were barely getting a kilometer range out. Like we could see Jeremy and we're like radio to him. And dude, I couldn't hear a word. There was nothing, a little bit of static, but nothing. Wow. So we kind of quickly realized how, and that's the thing. Like you, then you go, you talk to the boaties and they're like, yeah, yeah, make sure you carry a radio. And you're like, well, oh, we couldn't get much range. Oh yeah. We mount them on like poles way up so we can actually get some good range. And it made sense. We're like, oh yeah, right. That, you know, if you, if you don't have line of sight, you don't have radio, like you do a little, but and that's where, like, how quickly you lose friends when it's in big conditions. Like, you realize, like, they're not really going to travel far. So, we had those with us, which, yeah, failed. But then we've got a, which I guess is like our Coast Guard, Marine Rescue is what they're called. But they've got an app. And you basically, it tracks you. So, you basically log in your run. You go, all right, I'm going to start at this location. I'm going to finish at this location. It's going to take me, say, two hours. And I'm going to start at this time, finish at this time. And you leave all your details in there and it sends them your location every, I think it's every three to five minutes. It just sends them a location. 
And our our reception offshore is amazing. It's like even 15 kilometers offshore, I still had, I think, four bars of 4G, like really good reception. And we called them, once we started getting into this, we called them and said, what's the go? What do you, what's our best safety strategy? What's our best plan? Should we be carrying EPUBs? And he's like, look, he's like, EPUBs are pretty old tech. He's like, they've been around for a long time. He's like, if you're within that kind of 15, not going more than even 10 kilometers offshore, he's like, take your phone. He's like, the GPS location on that, like we get an exact pin. If you hit on the app, yep, I need help. We've got your location. We're going to drive straight to you. And he's like, we've got comms with you at the same time. Like they're like, just do it through the phone. It's honestly easier. So wow. we've just been using that and it's been like touch wood. Nothing's gone wrong yet, but it is a good system in that sense. Like it's, I've talked to even like we're over when we're in Hawaii, we're talking to the boys and some of the like guys that pioneered Jaws and they were talking about that. Oh man, it's been a game changer with the inflation vests. Like it just means if guys, you often lose, you lose your rider, whether the ski, they go, they get sucked out on the other side, whatever it is, dude, like we lose guys. It's having those like flotation vests. It's a game changer because they're not dying. And I was like, I was like, dude, we have an app that you can put on your Apple Watch and just hit it and be like, Coast Guard knows your location. They'll come pick you up. And their faces were like, what the, this exists? Like, it's so incredible. How are we not doing this? And I was, it's not like a game. And I said that, dude, you guys are close to shore. You're in reception range. It should be quite an easy solution. Like tech can solve that so quickly and easily. If yep. you're not out of reception range, it's a pretty easy, like you've got a device on your wrist that sends locations. It's got cellular all that sort of stuff. So to us now, we've had it for ages. It seems like such a, a simple system, but no one's kind of tapping into it yet. I wish we had that. I mean, I guess for us, I don't know if it's quite as important. I don't know if we would have the ocean rescue to get out there. I guess Coast Guard, uh, we've got a big Coast Guard base here, but yeah, the watches have been game changer for us. I mean, my wife has my location. I always let her know where I'm going, what the run's going to be. And so she can just track and generally she's my ride too thank you sarah and so <laughs> she knows like she can plan her Publix run or whatever it is to go get food at the same time that i'm <laughs> sending that sounds like mine i the the run that i usually do around here is 20 to 25 k's and it's right where we do our food shopping so i usually try and convince <laughs> my girlfriend like oh let's go do the food shopping as like an old downwind home and it's the perfect <laughs> setup but I gotta, I gotta thank her. She's done a lot of, of shuttle runs for me, so yeah, I owe her a lot. Yeah, me too, man. It's, it would be really difficult to be married to someone who wasn't supportive of the foiling downwind. I mean, because it takes over, and I think generally yeah. speaking, it's a very healthy obsession, addiction. But yeah, if you had the wrong partner, it would, it would be difficult. <laughs> Oh man, I hear of like Josh Koo and like Perth doing the downwind runs they do in Sydney, like runs that take 30 minutes on foil and three to four hours of driving. Like the ratios, and I think that's where like your location comes into it all. But man, those guys do some hours in the car just for short downwind runs. And our runs are pretty good. Like the, the ratio works out pretty well, how much time you spend in the car to downwinding. Yeah. But man without having a good partner and having to do if my partner's not around and we've got to do shuttle runs with the cars with the boys it just adds so much extra time so like having having a supporting partner is is key it's the best I, i'm pretty spoiled because i can walk to the beach from the house so i can always anchor because it's just a flat beach 
I can generally anchor one of the runs, one of the legs with no driving, which is really nice. Yeah, nice. Yeah, that's really good. It takes a lot of a lot of the time out of it. What are you geeking out on right now as far as downwind and gear? I mean, since we're on the downwind topic, you oh, I want to say something. Your last video that I think you released yesterday or today on the downwind foil was pretty maddening. And I should put out there, I think to the audience who's probably watching this, that not everyone can downwind with what looks to be a 70 beats per minute heart rate and talk and carry on a conversation and narrate a video like you did in that. I, I found it frustrating and I get so many people that hit me up. I had a couple this week. I finish a three for one or a four for one and I'm super out of breath and it doesn't look like you guys are out of breath. And I'm like, no, I'm super out of breath most of the time when I'm foiling. But there are levels to this game. I think there are levels to the cardio game too. And I was talking to Koo about you when we were out in Hood. And he's like, oh yeah, Oscar's like a marathon runner, does triathletes. He's a phenom. So I think maybe you should start there so that everyone understands your background and what, <laughs> what you can do outside of the water. And then we can put it in context in foils and what you're doing in the water. Yeah, so it started, I was never like going through high school and all that. Like I was never a big on training and all that sort of stuff. Like I did, I did heaps of sports. I loved sports, but never really, nothing that was endurance. I never went for runs, did any of that. But my, um, I got a twin sister who is actually a pro triathlete. And it was the same. I saw what she did and I was like, oh, that's cool. But dude, I did not want to go running. Like it was just like the furthest thing in my mind. I was like, nah. And it was, I went and visited her over in, she was doing a, a training camp over in Boulder, Colorado. It's the epicenter of endurance sports. And I went over there, dude, we are so competitive. It is ridiculous how competitive we are. And I think I arrived and it was like first morning, she's like, all right, I got a track session. And it was like, I think it was five by two kilometer efforts. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I'll be, I'll jump in on that. Like, why not? Like I got no running background and man, like I have never pushed myself that hard. Like, and there was something that clicked in me about it and like going, like pushing yourself so deep and just seeing what your body's capable of that I got a little addicted to on that trip. And it was the same, like it progressed after that. I ended up doing a bunch of training with her and her partner as well. He's a pro triathlete and just got sucked into that loophole. Like I never, I never raced or competed. I never ran any marathons or anything, but it was more the training side of it that I got into. And I, I just enjoyed seeing how deep you could go, how hard you could push, just seeing what the body was capable of. And that I think, that was when I started getting into foiling as well. So it translated well, like I, it brought in a good cardio base then for all the pumping and all that sort of stuff. And it's the same, it's the same as like seeing how long you can stay on foil in the surf, those sorts of things, those little challenges and seeing how deep you can go and how, how do you max it? It's, it's ultimately a game. Like if your cardio goes first, but your legs feel pretty good, you get, all right, well, how do I, how do I change things? What can I change in both technique or gear to be like, to be a bit more, utilize the muscle more, but less cardio. So I got into that and that kind of got me into, I guess, the downwind side of things where, you know, downwinding, especially with racing is, is a big fitness game. There's a lot of power and a lot of, a lot of cardio that's involved in it. And it's just, it's exactly like running, like cycling, like where you just want to, to go faster and go harder. you got to, you got to go a little deeper and push a bit harder and 
it's the same kind of drive that desire to just see how deep you can push it and how hard you can go and i mean it's funny like all the best guys especially in oz anyway like zane josh cooper james bennett we're all hyper competitive people and i think people don't realize as well like like, yeah, we're all just having fun. We're all like, I've seen guys walk out of prone sessions just pissed because someone else is doing better. <laughs> I've seen guys like pull out of downwind runs because someone's beating them. Dude, we are like hyper competitive people. And it just lends to that. Like you get on a downwind run, like whatever it is, like you just, you just got, you're paddling out. You're all having a good chat. All of a sudden you both get up on foil and you can tell someone's going hard. And then all of a sudden it's on. And it's just, <laughs> I mean, that's just. I think to be good at anything, like you've got to have that level of competitiveness and that drive to be the best. And man, I can tell you all the Aussie boys, there's, it's strong. All of them are like that. That's epic. What was really amazing to watch was, I think it was, was it the M2O when you had the comeback? Was that the race? Um, I was following it online. So the M2O was, I led most of it through the channel and it was mm-hmm. James that then picked me at the end. So... Uh, yeah, that was really fun to watch unfold online. It looked like, I think on, when I was watching online, it looked like you made a big surge coming into the the, the final leg, like the final area there. Like you were making yeah, yeah. time on everyone, right? Yeah, so I moved up a little, like it's line choice with the M2O is super important. So yeah. your swell's coming from the north but your wind's coming a little bit more from the east, so behind you. So if you get a little, you can get a little sucked into kind of running a bit more sort of straight east, but that's the wind bumps are your slowest bumps, whereas the fastest bumps are the swells coming from the north. So I chose to run a little bit of a higher line. So like when, when you watch the race unfold, like I guess Andrew, James, and Edo all kind of ran pretty dead straight lines, whereas I ran a little bit up to the north. And the thing is, as soon as I make that call then to start straight lining it i guess to the final corner at china walls because i'm up a bit higher north i can run with those swells and they're moving so much quicker so i knew i was slowly moving north but as soon as i wanted to turn and make that kind of last push to the wall i had a much faster line coming in so i think it was you look at it on the tracker and we're all pretty pretty well on the same if you looked at a straight line distance we're all pretty well even but I knew that as soon as I made that last maybe three to four kilometers approach, I was going to be, be a little quicker and no one else was further north than me. So that was my, I guess, probably why it looked like I, I made a surge at the end. Yeah. What what foil were you riding? So I was on the Armstrong downwind performance foils, which is a 755, which is area, centimeter squared. Yeah. And I got to talk to Army about that when we were out in Hood and such a cool unique design with the exaggerated camber yeah yeah you know, it was really I mean, it cool. is, it's a radical radical section when you see it for anyone who hasn't yeah. seen it you pick that thing up like you look at it you're like oh yeah it's a high aspect foil the numbers are getting up there but you see What's, it in real life it is totally different what is that like a 13 ar uh 13 mid 13s i know the yeah. 685 is like a 13.55 but so, so yeah around like 13 to 13 and a half if you had to do it over again would you ride the same foil Ooh. you know because I, I know that the this the takeoff and the and the finish were pretty difficult on smaller equipment i don't know if you consider it yeah. smaller but 
Um, oh, definitely. And I mean, that's your that's the gamble with the M2O. It is a flat water start. You need to be able to pump out and make it into the win line. And then same for the finish. It's a brutal finish. So you need something that has quite a bit of pump on it. The 655 at the time was the smallest that we had. So I, didn't, I just knew that I was going to make it out to the win line with that. It'd be interesting to try it with the 685. I've only had a couple. I've really just looked for nuking conditions to give that foil a run. And it's been epic. But I haven't really tested sort of... I know I can flat water start it, but I don't know how far, once I'm up on foil, how far I could just pump with it. So maybe it would be possible with the 685. And with the latest kind of feelings I've been getting from it, it probably would be possible as an M2O foil, like to, to stay on foil all the way into the wind line and make it in one clean go. But to be honest, like even on the day, like we all got there, it was pretty light conditions on the day and very east winds. So I knew it was going to be a long pump out into that wind line. So to be honest, the 755 felt pretty perfect. But so I know you would have gone bigger though. I was thinking that you'd go the other way, that you'd maybe go a little bigger. Oh no, definitely not. I'd, yeah, I'd only go smaller. Gotcha. The 755, which would have been, yeah. For those conditions, like it was quite a comfortable pump to get out to the wind line. It wasn't a, a massive struggle on that foil. It's just whether I could have made it with the smaller foil. The trade-off is you go to such a deep place just to make it out to the, to the wind line. So if you're on a small foil and you're struggling that much just to get out there, by the time you get into the channel, I mean, you spend 20 minutes just recovering and trying to get rid of lactic acid in your legs. Like you go that deep. Wow. It's just, it's hard to recover from. And I think, although I say it felt easy to get out there, we were flying on so much adrenaline. You, you sit there on a start line with, I don't remember, there was a lot of guys on the start line, but you know, once we got up, it was me, I was right on next to Kyle Lenny. So pumping out into the channel at the start of M2O with Kyle Lenny next to you, like all the boats to once, like it was such a surreal experience. And there was so much adrenaline pumping that I pro I think it was harder than I remember. I'll put it out. I think I was just like in the moment, just going, holy shit, this is actually happening. And then it was, I probably wasn't taking as much. Yeah. Like that much adrenaline. You just don't feel much. You just go. And I think when Kai, Kai fell maybe five minutes in something like that, he came down, he was just gassed. And that was where like it set in. I was like, holy shit. Like I'm in the lead of the M2O with two other guys just going, oh, what is going on? <laughs> so it was, yeah, like maybe it was possible with a smaller foil, but I think you, the, I don't know whether for, you've got two hours ahead of you of, of racing through the channel. I don't know if your legs would be able to recover from such an intense effort at the start. So yeah, that was my big take. That was my big takeaway from Hood River in testing a bunch of different boards was how much I enjoy getting up on foil at the beginning of a run with low cardio. And the way that I've explained yeah. it to some of the guys here who are thinking about buying boards is you don't want to start a 10K run with a 400-meter sprint. You're going you're gonna to be in that cardio deficit for the beginning of the run. And sometimes you come off of it pretty quickly and sometimes you don't. Like in you know, more difficult days, it's it can be grueling. And so I've actually gone up. I've got a two Perotos coming, I hope, really soon. I think one this week and then one in a week or two after that. Going up in liters from what I've been riding. I've always been right around 100. And Kuz, I'm on 106, 107 liters. And I outweigh him by 20 pounds, 25 pounds. 
So I'm going up to 112 and 123 are the two that I'm testing here soon. Um, yeah, volume's, volume's your friend in those boards. I mean, I guess Zay, I know Zane was the first I knew who did it. He went up to about 100 or 105 liters. Mm-hmm. And I think like the going, I mean, you come from a sub background. It was, I was running off 30% of your body weight in kilos to liters, but now it's sort of, so say if you weigh hundred kilos, you're looking at a 130 liter board. That was the old, when I got into sup down winning, what everyone was yeah. going with, but it feels more like guys are going more like 40, 45% now. So you're looking at a hundred kilo guy, maybe 140 to 145 liters. And there's, there's not much negative to that. It's just, it's easy to get up. It's easy to paddle. It's more stuck. All of that, there's just positives. And I think the way boards have refined that, a longer board isn't as negative as everyone first thought it was. Like everyone was going, oh, these, the Barracudas came out and they're like, oh, they're like eight foot. That'd be terrible to ride. I don't even want to go near it. And then everyone gets on it and you're like, oh, like it actually carves pretty good. Like the pitch is so stable and it, it actually feels pretty nice. And especially you think of it, you're not adding, if you go from a, a seven to a, an eight foot board, you're not adding a foot to the nose. Your mast also moves forward. You're adding a lot of that length to the back as well. So while you're adding a foot to the board, you're only maybe say you add six inches nose and tail, like you keep it pretty central. It's quite a, it's not a massive change. And I think the benefits in going to those bigger boards is it's so much better. Yep. Yep. And, and you're getting up on a smaller, faster foil in the same conditions with the same work, which is a huge benefit. Exactly. What's been really interesting, like we just did this mid-length board that we're calling the Enigma, and I was like, Mike and I were talking about it the other day, and it's been downwinding is what has led to the ability to to make this mid-length board because we started to understand the difference in dimensions on a board where it's not necessarily uh, volume and width and length, it's swing weight, touch points, and foil placement and angles, and the foil placement thing is such a big deal because we're riding, I'm riding this five, six mid length all the time now. And I'm really only gaining probably five, six inches of nose from my prone setups when I, when I prone it. And with the touch points where we're putting the volume, you're not even gaining that in touch point. So it's, it's just this really cool thing. And the balance is really good because of where you're putting it. And it's just like before downwinding, I don't think that we understood that yet. And now downwinding has taught us it's it's really cool how the different disciplines within the sport are bringing back these little characteristics into all of the others. Which totally, is totally. And Dave's and been I, leading the I, charge I, on the boards. Oh, Dave Dave set the gold standard with the Barracudas. I mean, no one was looking at dimensions like that for a downwind board. Nope. And the the impact that's had on foiling as a whole is nuts. I remember with Armstrong, when I first got involved with them, they're like, oh, we could make you a custom downwind board. And I was like, yeah, that'd be epic. So I was making my own at the time. And I was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. Like, this is what I was thinking. And they were like, but it's really not something we're going to put into production. But it's just not much of a market for it. And it just started to evolve and we sort of prototyped a few boards. And it was all of a sudden, shit, this works really good for winging. Like, yeah. We don't need to, went from being on like sinkers, struggling to get up. And then all of a sudden you have to ride massive wings just to drag yourself out, pull yourself out of the water. And guys were like, oh, just like handling such a big wing sucked. Whereas now it's like, all right, well, stay on a small wind wing, even when it's light wind, 
but you yep. can get up so easy because you're on a downwind board. It just yep. glides, pulls up. And I think you guys have also taken the step of pushing that now into the prone side of things. Go to a little bit of a mid-length, a narrow, little bit longer prone board. Yep. And it's like, oh shit, like that works. Like it's 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 easier to catch the wave, the guy's even learning. But also for when it's that little bit too small that you just ultimately like pro boards, it's like a bodyboard. It's like a four foot little biscuit that you're trying to catch you. Like you're not gliding into waves nicely and like you would on a surfboard. And that's where like these kind of, I can't, I'm going to call them mid lengths, but what was like, what's your enigma? How long's that? Five, six, 55 liters. Yeah. Which yeah. in the foot, I guess in, in the prone realm is a mid-length, but it's, yeah. by any surf realm, it's definitely not. No. But it actually, five, six, like that's getting to you. Maybe like fishy dimensions where like you are actually gliding in and catching the waves a little bit easier. And yep. there's still, and I think board development, like everyone focuses on foil development, but board development has come so, so far. Like downwinding a year ago is a totally different realm than it is with the new boards completely agree and, and like on the mid-length thing it's the bigger swells too it's so easy to get in so all of a sudden yeah like days that i'm like oh it's on the verge i'll probably get a toe today oh no i'm, I'm gonna prone it's gonna be epic which is yeah. really cool yeah yeah oh, there's, there's still so much that's going on and you see what like bennett's is doing at the moment with the yep. kind of almost like a chopped off tail like right at the back of the boxes and we, everyone did that, I guess, the bevel out the back to reduce that tail touchdown, but still keep a bit of length. And he's on, I just spent some time with him in Fiji and he's on a, a 3.8. And it's insane. He's gone so short, but there's still a lot of benefits. I towed that board or I towed a similar board. And there are, there are benefits to all of it. Everything in foiling is a, a pros and cons game. You can go to such a small board. It feels so lively. There's almost no t- the touch points are perfect. But it sucks to paddle. You, you can't get around it. A 3.8 is never going to paddle well. And that's where if it gets that little bit too big, you're not going to be able to get into them. If it's And that's where things like the mid-length pro board is, has so much potential. Yeah. Is foiling your full-time gig right now? It isn't. I, I still work full-time. So I am a, oh God, geospatial developer, <laughs> which... IT shit. I, I get a bit stuck trying to explain <laughs> yeah. to people. But yeah, we yeah, it's it's IT stuff which we do. Any spatial data, any data that has geographic references, okay, gets treated very differently. It goes through different systems, and I work basically on that. Those anything to do with that sort of data is what we work with. So techie nerd stuff. Let's go with that. How? Has but that it's been- awesome. Like I can travel. You you can work remote. Yeah, exactly. So all these trips, like in France, like I was still working while I was, I'm working about four days a week at the moment. That's so awesome. So it's been a, it's, it were, and that's what I think that was probably one really good thing that actually came out of COVID was the, the landscape of kind of remote working totally changed. And without that change, I wouldn't be able to do the trips and travel the way I am. Yeah, that's awesome to be able to have that freedom. I, I was assuming because of the amount of trips that you're going on. I mean, I just saw you in the Motu hood, France, that maybe foiling was the was the full-time gig at this point, which would be awesome. It's awesome to be able to keep your hand in something else as well. You think foiling is going to be yeah. there at some point for you in that in that aspect? I mean, yeah, it's an interesting thing at the moment. I'm at the stage now where it's, it's taking up so much of my time, <laughs> like foiling and maintaining a job. So it's like, 
I need to like, someone's got to give at this stage. I, I'd like to lean into foiling more. And I mean, where I'm at with work, they've been super flexible and they're stoked if I, if I want to transition to a little bit less work, more foiling. And it just, it's got to work ultimately. And, and that's where having, you look at the grind. I, I talk to so many guys that are pro surfers that have come through and just the grind it is every year when contracts come up, if performances aren't there, all that sort of stuff. Like it's pretty stressful and it also removes a little bit of the brand loyalty. Like I think you see the top QS guys on the world tour and they, they stay with that. They've got longer contracts, but for the regular guys trying to make it like, man, your contracts are only a year. You, it also throws in once that year comes up, you they start hunting around for contracts and needing to take the best offer because just to keep their kind of head afloat. And I think, especially with foiling, it's your development cycles are quite long. It takes a lot of time to really work on something, really refine something. Like you can't get it done in a year. And that's where not having to be reliant on a contract in my position has been epic. Like it's just meant that like with Armstrong, I've just been diving in. We've been able to work on so much stuff and just remove that question mark at the end of each year. Like it's just that loyalty is different. And that's, I mean, the development side of things probably is where I'm more interested in than anything. I mean, I think you can't not be into foiling and want to geek out on all the shims numbers and foil. Like it's, it's such a rabbit hole, but it's, man, it's so exciting. And even when I, I remember when the first HA came out, I was like, man, we like, the development's got to plateau. Like we've got to be seeing the end of the development soon. It's got to slow down and we're all going to end up on something similar. But dude, every time it just keeps evolving and getting so much better. Yep. I mean, we're starting to see the diversification, the niche foils that are out there. I mean, the new downward one that you guys are just put out right now. In Totally. The design side, I, I'm just fascinated with, obviously. I absolutely love it. How are you helping in that process? What are you doing? So mostly just testing to how certain foils feel. Like there's obviously a lot of discussion going on around what is the ideal foil for particular disciplines now. And I think right. that's probably been a big focus point. I think from Armstrong anyway, like we went down the mid aspect line and it was specifically for winging. And I still, as soon as I've got power, like with winging or with towing, I, a mid aspect's pretty unreal. Like the, the role, the rail to rail control that you get with a mid aspect, I just, for, for doing hard turns, that's to me is kind of where, where it's at. But then for prone, if you need to link waves, like mid aspects are tough to pump. Mm-hmm. Like they, they can be done, but it's, it's, it's hard work. And that's where I've been working now on what is the ideal, I guess, surf foil. And we're leading towards, I guess, a higher aspect ratio. Yep. And I think, like, where are, where are the progression foils? What aspect ratio are you guys at with those? I know the 125 is quite a bit higher aspect than, like, the 140 and the 170. Yeah, they're all in the 9 range, depending on which one, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we're similar. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I see, like, you, you need one of the most unique parts of foiling is that you can pump and connect weight. There's so much, there's that extra level of kind of freedom and creativity in the lines that you draw because you can pump and link waves. And that's where I was like, well, if you can make a high aspect surf and turn well, like having that ability to just glide and link bumps, I think is is pretty critical. And I think that, I guess hearing that you guys are somewhere similar, it can 
it feels like we're all heading in that direction to yep. sort of prone and surf wing more in that yeah the nine realm higher aspect ratios yeah like the nine tens i want to say and then yeah what's been interesting is working on stuff that's a little bit smaller and what you have to do to get that to perform and that's been so fun and i'm sure that you've been doing this as well is just you can't just make a foil and then scale it it doesn't work that way i mean we thought it worked that way everyone did that for a few years but each one is their own design project essentially and yeah yeah you have to be so clear on what you're trying to optimize for i mean you have to come in with real clear parameters of what's a success and what's not a success because a bunch of guys get a a proto and oh i love this for this it's well yeah but that's not maybe what what you want to get out of it it's cool though oh there's oh dude it's so interesting and i think it's so hard to convey how the spoils size i mean everyone went through stages of looking at various numbers whether it's aspect ratio and area or span or whatever and you're trying to get a a sense of how how a spoil is going to feel and if it's the right size for you based on those numbers but how important section is oh man yep that is a dark art. That is. I wrote like one when we first started. So like with Ar- Armstrong's currently working on a, I guess a surf foil, which is a high aspect. And one of the first things we did was to put a new section in the old foil, in the old HA foil, and ex- everything exactly the same, but just change the section. Yep. And it went from something that I could pump for three to four waves to fifty-five minutes on foil. And I was wow. like, how like. You, and you, if you looked at the numbers that you're going to sell that to someone, numbers are identical. Eric, there's nothing different. Right. But the section's completely different. And that's yeah. where it is so hard to convey that. And like, like you said, you can't scale them. Like you get on one, you try and maybe try and scale it or tweak it a little for the, the next size. And it's completely different. You've got to yep. completely tune that size in again. Yup. And that's what makes it so fun is just the, like the infinite game aspect to it i don't know if you know the finite and infinite games thing but infinite games are the best games downwinding is an infinite game foil design is an infinite game and they're the ones that you get lost in for decades oh totally i mean i'd love to say that we're getting closer to a a perfect foil but i guarantee in five years we're gonna be looking back on like what were we riding like there's gonna be some game-changing evolution that's still to come like we're we're not hitting the the apex of it yeah that's for sure and we're just talking in design right now and not material science what if you figure yeah. out something that is twice as stiff and half the weight uh, that changes yeah. everything totally totally and we're so limited by the materials that we have at the moment i mean yep. imagine if you could make a mask that was eight millimeters thick but just as stiff like yep i would change everything same as yep. the front wings like you could yep. go to ridiculously high aspect ratios and still keep them stiff. And I mean, I guess the structural integrity and stiffness, like stiffness has been, well, I guess it was a big talking point, but I feel like all the brands have have come to a good a good place now. Where like everyone's been master stiff, the connections are good. Everyone's got to that, a similar place with that. And I think like with the downwind performance foils from Armstrong, like going to that high of an aspect ratio it's tricky to get it stiff enough. It's like your layer, all that sort of stuff, getting that structural integrity in there and having it stiff enough is so tricky. And that's where there were so many gains made to get those foils to where they are, really. Yep. Yeah, no, the the stiffness. And, and I think that span and weight 
are the two big considerations for stiffness. Because Brian, who's about 30 pounds lighter than I am, can ride the same setup. And he's, oh, no, it's super stiff. And I'm like, dude, this thing's a noodle. <laughs> I just think it makes a big difference if you're pushing a little bit harder in everything. So, yeah, it's not oh, all absolutely. No, no. And I mean, Jez's came aboard with Armstrong, I think, last year, maybe earlier this year it was. And he's a Jeremy Wilmot. He's, God, he's a unit. 97 kilos at the moment. He's 6'5". He's an absolute unit. But he's so good for testing in that sense. He's, you put him on it, he's like, that's a little, that doesn't work. And you're like, all right, good to know. Whereas I get on and on then. I'm 71 <laughs> kilos at the moment. It means nothing when I say it's stiff. I'm like, don't listen to me. Just <laughs> whatever Jezza records. How much time are you spending prone, wing, downwind now? I know it's always just what's on offer, but where are you optimizing your time around? Yeah, definitely prone. I mean, prone's my go-to. So coming, we're coming into summer now. And so we tend to, we get a sea breeze most afternoons, uh, which is perfect for downwinding. So usually mornings we'll be proning. And then if the wind is on, it'll either be downwinding or winging. Mm-hmm. At the moment, I'm frothing on winging. I spent, dude, it is so fun. It's really good. <laughs> like as soon as, okay, winging is the worst thing to learn. I, the fucking it worst. Fucking sucks, <laughs> dude. I, I've heard everyone say it, and I was like, ah, surely it's not that bad. And as soon as I did, I was like, man, this sucks. I yep. hated it. And for us, we don't have any kind of flat water to go and learn. It's you paddle out in the surf, you get blown down the beach, <laughs> you paddle back in. Usually, you try just not to rip something and drag it up the beach, and then walk the whole beach back up. And it sucks, man. It is. It is not fun, but as soon as it clicks, the amount of time you get on foil, like yep. the ratios are so good for winging. Like you have a two hour session, you're probably on foil an hour 55 of that. Like it is insane. Yep. And that's, yeah, just, I mean, I spent some time with Cash Mazzola, kid on Armstrong as well. And oh man, watching that kid ride just was so inspiring. Like it was like, we got guys here, there's good, good wingers, I suppose. They do some nice turns on waves and whatever. And to then have a session with that kid, like kids doing front flips into whitewater on four foot waves. And it was just a whole nother realm that I just never really appreciated or seen. And what that kid does on a wave is just insane. And it's just motivated me so much. Even the like the slides, I don't know, I think they call them rhino slides, but like Foil yeah. comes out of the water and they're just sliding on it and like doing that across a wave face and then kind of like re-engaging into a bottom turn. I was like, it's just wild and so much style. And that that at the moment's probably been my my or my obsession lately is definitely the winging. But prone definitely takes it's definitely what we do most of the time. Yeah. You know, that slide is is I mean, one of the gnarliest things out there, I think. And I get to spend a lot of time here foiling with Austin Toby, who, you know, Armstrong guy. Yeah. And yeah. he's doing those strapped towing now or prone, which is just oh, mental really? to see it. Yeah. He's doing it without the wing. He did one to a 360 the other. I think it's on his uh, IG. Yeah. Just I, I saw that one. That one yeah. was insane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he'll be doing those strapless very soon, I'm sure. But oh. kids a whole nother level. Him and Noah, man, those guys are just on a whole other level. Those guys are insane. 
Yeah. Yeah, the whole winging thing caught me by surprise because it was such a, like, I don't know. It was it was the thing to do when there was nothing else to do. And I didn't care at all about it. And then got really into it over the summer on the downwind boards, just as, like, I'd call it sailing. I'd just go out there and just, you know, sail around and, you know, do some turns on little bumps, whatever, on our flat days and sea breeze in the afternoon. And then when we got these new boards, and I was always on bigger boards because I just hated shockers so much on the wing that yeah. the only thing yeah. that I wanted to optimize for was not wanting to punch my board. And so <laughs> it would always be on a big foil. Like I'd ride the 200 and I'd ride a five meter wing and a downwind board. And I knew I was going to have fun because that's I just didn't want to get upset doing something that I didn't really care about. And then all of a sudden yeah. we got these smaller boards in and we've had some really good wind and everything just came together. And now all of a sudden, like I found myself, I was laughing because I found myself the other day watching the finals of one of the last wing foil contests, like geeking out on all the stuff that these guys are doing, <laughs> who are all like 14 and 16 years old, which kind of is like yeah, yeah. that in its own right and amazing at the same time. Oh, those kids are ri- I mean, that's, it's been interesting. Yeah. Like I never, I was never attracted to the wing stuff, like especially like the, the, the trick stuff. I mean, it's good. I mean, they're all like 14 year old kids that are like 50 kilos and just doing front flips and whatever. I don't know, like 14 40s, I think was the last thing I saw. It's insane, but it's the stuff they're doing on the waves as well. Like they're bringing a whole different perspective into it. And it's, man, there's still so much progression that'll go on in winging. Like it's, it's wild. And it's just, I mean, I think that's, I guess with foiling in general, like, you have so much, there's always so much to learn. And I feel as a surfer, you can get a little stagnated if you don't have the right conditions or whatever it is. You can go weeks where you just are not that stoked, but foiling, it's like you've always got, you work, whether you're not, you're working on like downward, you want to work on doing more turns, you want to work on going faster, winging, you want to work on maybe learning jumps, riding waves, whatever it is, like prone. There's always something that you're learning. And I think that to me has always been like the biggest drive with foil. Like you just always learn it. You're all like your mind. I swear it never stops thinking about foiling. Like <laughs> you go to sleep at night and you're still like, shit, I could have done that turn a little differently. Like then you watch clips. You like, it's just, it's an obsession, but it is, it's a healthy obsession. Yeah. Thank goodness. The, the, the wing and the downwind disciplines I am finding incredible for just time on foil and foot movement. It's, I go back and I look at prone clips from about a year ago to now, and I thought I moved my feet a lot. And <laughs> the amount of foot movement I have now, even in between turns, just setting up for the right pressures that I want in the next turn. And I have to credit downwinding and, and winging for that because I've, I've been proning for a while, and those are the new ones, and that's the only variable that's changed. It's been cool that it's had such a positive effect on prone toe yeah yeah oh dude i'm i'm totally the same i think as soon as i started riding a downwind board how much that taught me about foot position was it like it's it's a bigger board than your prone big scaled up version your foot position like how you lever the board and move it around translates to all the other disciplines like how i'm the same like you you do a bottom turn on your prone board and all i'm doing is moving my back foot to just try and get it in that perfect position and like i'll yep. often like lag on the bottom turn i think i got it i got it all right now <laughs> yeah. and it's that like there you move so and it's 
like even in clips, like it's hard to see. Like a lot of it's just like you're just sliding your foot, like kind of heel toe, just yep. sliding it just that little bit. But it, man, it makes such a difference. It does. Hey, give me a give me a second. I'm gonna go grab some cough drops. <laughs> I'm yeah, yeah. starting to hurt a little bit. I'll I might do the same. I can. My, my nose is just blowing up. <laughs> yeah. I'll be right back. <laughs> All right. You back? Yeah, I'm back. I can breathe again. Yeah, I just I put you on mute while I blew my nose. I've got like a fucking. <laughs> trash bin of tissues here i keep putting you on mute while i'm putting myself on mute while you're talking and i'm, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm dude, hoping i round the like... corner tonight dude <laughs> <laughs> dude i was just slowly getting worse and worse through. i was like i could feel my nose getting worse i was like oh i'm glad yeah. you broke that up there that was good i yeah i brought two cough drops over to the desk and i went through them already and i'm like all right i'm starting to get <laughs> got a tickle back in my throat all right and we're back oh. <laughs> Quick so, uh, blow the nose, yeah. get a cough drop. We're good. We're on. Let's see here. What do you want to? What do you want to dive into? What don't I know about you? What pe- What don't people know about you that you think is worthy of conversation, Oscar? Ooh, that's a very good one. I don't know. I'm a pretty open book. I mean, yeah, it's been interesting, kind of delving into. I guess somewhat getting pushed, not into the limelight, like just people start to know you through the foiling and all that. And it's been a weird transition where people start to know a lot about you, which is interesting. Uh, but I'm, dude, I'm such an open book. I, it's funny, like people, if they meet me in person, dude, I just froth. I just love talking about all of it. And we were in, we were in Hawaii or if we were in Hood River, I mean, Jeremy's one, my partner's another, they're just like, when I get stuck in a conversation, they just leave now. My partner's like, <laughs> I'm back in two hours. I'll come back and get you in two hours. Ah, oh, man, I just love it. But yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything that's got particularly that I can think of anyway. So you're a geospatial engineer. Um, yeah. Does that help you? So that's just on the data side. Or are you like breaking down? It seems to me like that would be maps. Uh, like GPS yeah, data, yeah. all that. So are you the guy then who's planning most of the runs with GPS? Do you have some inside data there that you're like looking at? So yeah, I for M2O, I actually, I wrote my own app. So it sideloads into an Apple Watch. And the main thing that I wanted with it was to plot a line or a course that I wanted to take. And I wanted it like a really just simple, like I want to be able to look down at my watch and be like, all right, you are... 35 meters to the left or to the right. Like it just give me an arrow to where is the nearest point along that course. There's a few other apps that do it like waypoints where you can like drop points, but it always gives you a direction to the next waypoint. Right. Which kind of defeats the purpose. So this kind of gave me the, yeah. And even just for downloading in general, it means you can plot a course where you need to head and it, you just look at your watch and it gives you an arrow just to the left or the right and just says, yep, you are 30 meters off to the left or whatever it is. And so that's what that really helped me with M2O. And I think it's super useful for just downwinding in general. There's when, so many of your runs, especially when you're doing new runs, like you don't know, like you can know a coastline well, but when you're a few kilometers offshore looking back at it, totally different. And having something that kind of shows you, I guess, say, all right, you're five kilometers into your run, you're still on your line, blah, blah, blah. Like having that sort of data is pretty key for navigating while you're on foil. Like, 
it's tricky enough to downwind, let alone work out where to go and to like, you can't bring your phone, unless you come down and sit down, it's pretty difficult to like bring your phone out and try and work out where you are on a map. So having something that's just quick, you can just stare at and be like, all right, yep, I'm doing well, like I'm, I'm on track. Yeah, I find that even on, I know our beach here fairly well. It, some of parts of it all look the same just because it's just houses on the beach and whatnot. But on the harder, like the, the more difficult runs, a lot of my falls will be trying to figure out where I am along the beach because you're sitting there just looking at the beach and you're, you're not paying attention to what you're doing. So that seems very brilliant to create your own. Yeah. Did, did you also look at like current and uh, depths, anything like that in putting that route together? I just lent on everyone else. Like I, especially for M2O, there's so many guys that have paddled it before. Guys that know that channel so well, they know the bathymetry, everything, and they recommended a line to take. And that was why I went a little bit further to the north. I think, yeah, I didn't look at any of the current maps. I just relied on what those guys quite blindly just said, what, where should I go? What sort of line should I take? And plotted that course. But I haven't myself looked into it too much. And I think particularly, like for racing, it's useful, but for general riding, I'm not too worried about those sorts of parameters. It's, mm -hmm. I think a lot of downwinding is on the fly. There's just so many variables. Like it's almost impossible to completely model or understand. Like I did my thesis at uni on, it was hydrodynamics in estuarines, in estuaries. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you quite quickly realize like water is such a difficult medium to model. It had, there are so many variables to it. And there's, especially with downwinding, like you try and factor in all the refraction, the bathymetry, like you even just to contemplate that. And then to, to further factor in currents, all that sort of is just, there is so much to it. I don't think we'll ever get to a, I mean, I'm sure one day we will, but it is just such a tricky one to model. And I think, I think that's as well why a lot of the Aussies have been doing well in races. Like we have such a, a variable coastline, both with currents, bathymetry, conditions, like you, every headland you go around, there's a totally different condition on the other side. And we're forced to, to ride in so many different conditions. Whereas you look at like the Hawaiians, like you do the Maliko run. I don't know if you've ever been over to Maui, but that run is just perfect. It is, if you want to just do a dead straight run in the best bumps, that's like the most perfect run. But it also, the flip side is you're not then getting to experience too many other conditions. You've just got perfection. So. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, that's, that's definitely one of the reasons. That's how we felt. The, the whole Florida crew felt about hood was it felt like cheating. It didn't feel like the same sport. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was so fun and easy. And I guess everyone's saying that about Hood, but I mean, it was just a couple paddles, you're up, just cruising. You're just amazing. Yeah. And the line, man, Hood is, it's a little skate park. Yeah. Like it's usually with downwinding, you're kind of looking forward, but Hood's one of the few you can look back. And like you can peel off a wave and they're so tightly packed and so steep, you can run into the wave behind and almost go straight at it and do a full top to bottom turn like it's it's such a wild place and there's still there's still so much in line choice at hood that i reckons i was talking to pedigo about it and the way you can peel off a wave at hood is totally different to anywhere else and and i'm trying to replicate that in the ocean like as these foils get faster and faster like i'm trying to 
rather than look forward and use that speed to move into the, the next bump in front, try and use it to draw a unique line at the bump behind. And I think that's been, I mean, that's totally changing, I guess, the diff- the turns you can do downwind as well. And also, every time you move forward through a bump, you lose, you're gaining time, you're, lo- you're gaining distance. Whereas if you peel off to the one behind, you're moving back, you're gaining. So you're all of a sudden, the, the runs become a little bit longer and you get a few extra turns in. So I'm yeah. of the mindset at the moment of trying to maximize the run in the short. If you just go straight and fast, the run's over pretty quick. And I don't know, I, I like the idea of maximizing, getting the most turns and most time on foil for the shortest possible run. So that's been my latest little obsession. It's a good game. I love the games analogy. That's how I look at almost everything. What game are you playing today? Yeah. And I think the people that challenge themselves to play the better game end up ahead in all aspects of life. I, I, that game analogy is something I've used for a long time in kind of all aspects. So that's really cool that you brought that up. But yeah, things that people don't know about. I'm trying to I'm just keep going back to God. What do people not know about me? I mean, outside of foiling, I mean, the one thing like health, I'm very into kind of, I guess, health and fitness, more eating. It's like my latest, well, I've been in an obsession for a while is like fasting and trying to work that in, especially with downward foiling. And I think a lot of, I've been fasting pretty much for the last probably four or five years, intermittent fasting, and more trying to tap into burning fat as a fuel source. I think what is your like, daily uh, intermittent fasting routine? Are you like a 16-8 guy? Yeah, so day to day, I do donate until 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. and pretty much stop eating by 8. So, but then two days a week, I'll do a 24 hour fast. So, donate till dinner on those two days. Yep. And I think, and I try and, if I'm training, I'll try and do my longer, more like my endurance training sessions on those fasting days and do them late as well. Oh, interesting. And I think, so I'm, and that's where, yeah, I guess being able to switch into burning fat as a fuel source. I guess everyone calls it hitting the wall. Like when you're, your body's not, I guess they say fat adapted. If it can't yeah. burn fat as a fuel source, you have that moment, like usually it's an hour or two in where you just hit the wall. And that's where that saying comes from, like where you just, your body runs out of glycogen, it stores, it completely depletes those and it goes, shit, what do I burn now? And it's, quite interesting how i guess the modern diet like where we eat anywhere from three to five meals a day like we're consistently getting particularly carbs in like the body always has a fuel source to grab those glycogen stores but it doesn't have ever have a need to burn fat so like your body's is great at burning fat but you do need to train it and especially if you've had you know if you've been eating three to five meals a day it's it's tough to then, it takes a couple of weeks to a month to train your body to burn fat as a fuel source. But once you get into that, or you train your body into that, it just switches between those different fuel stores instantaneously. You don't even notice it. And that's, you notice it particularly when you're fasting, you don't get tired throughout the day. Like when you first start fasting, you get that after breakfast, heading towards lunch, you start to get a bit tired. Oh, I need to eat, I need to get energy. And that's your body kind of like, running out of those glycogen stores and then you, you have lunch you replenish those and you're like, oh, yep, i'm back i'm ready to go and you do it again but with the intermittent fasting you force your body to run out of those glycogen stores and they go all right now we need to start using something else what's the next 
you know, most readily available thing. And you got to be a little careful at the start because your body won't know what to burn. It can burn muscle as well as a fuel source, which is which is not good. And it just takes a few, you want to ease into it and teach your body to start burning fat. But for me, the biggest game change is just, you just never get that tiredness. Like you can not eat all day and your energy levels just flatline. And it doesn't really matter what you're doing. Like that just, like even one second now, once we got back from Fiji, you know, we're eating breakfast, lunch and dinner and you all of a sudden start to get back into that routine and your body does as well, like where it starts to get tired again before meals and, and so that's been the biggest game changer for me, just A, the amount of time, like you can just keep going. Like you never get that kind of tired or that slump, but also just throughout the day, your energy levels are so stable. Do you ever do keto as well? I know like I've played around with a lot of the intermittent fasting and then keto. And actually I love being on keto. And the only reason that I got off keto was, was foiling. About a year and change into foiling, I could no longer keep up with, uh, with you know, the cardio kind of explosive hit training output being in keto and so i started like my wife thinks it's hilarious but my diet for a long time was keto plus carbs um <laughs> which is it's not keto but i would basically eat keto and then in the evening i would crush like a massive bowl of popcorn or something just to give me a little bit of glycogen so that i could get through how hard i was sending it in the water and that's actually a yeah. great way to become key like fat adapted keto adapted is just do keto for a little while and your body will get used to it. And then your body's always good at burning carbohydrates. You, you'll always be able to go back yeah. to that really quickly. Yeah. I mean, that's it. Like carbs are the most readily available thing. So like naturally your body's an efficient system. It's going to try and burn those carbs. They're, they're, they're easier to burn. They're quicker. They're all that. So your body's always going to try and burn them and it can always go back to burning them very easily. But getting your body to burn fats is that's the challenge. I start, I did play with keto for a while and I think I struggled with it more so. I actually put weight on with keto, which was an interesting, Wow. I think. And that was kind of like, that was quite a few years back and it was more, I think, around understanding your gut and its role in, in it all. And I think one of the things that I, I didn't get a massive, I haven't done it properly yet, but you can get the sort of blood insulin meters and you mm -hmm. can start to watch how your insulin changes with different foods and that kind of spikes in insulin show what foods you're storing as fat or you're burning you can learn that and i found that when i was eating high fat foods my body was just turning it straight to fat and it wasn't using it as a kind of a, a readily available yeah my body just wasn't it was just tended to, to lean towards storing it as fat and i wasn't getting that kind of day-to-day -day energy that i needed out of it which was super interesting and i think that's looking at keto or intermittent fasting, all that sort of stuff, like diets in general, like you really need to understand your own gut and like what foods you process well, what you can function well on. And that's been really key, I guess, to, for me anyway, especially like moving into downwinding, like longer runs and more endurance things. I do runs with guys and they're like, oh, they're planning nutrition for an hour run. They're like, I'm going to need to take bars. I'm going to need to take goo, all this hydration. Whereas I can do a two hour down and run and like, as long as I have a bit of water beforehand, I'm fine. I don't need to replenish any stores because I know my body will transition into burning fats and I've got, I've got enough of it to, to keep going really. Yeah, that's awesome. On the longer runs, I will always bring a couple gels and maybe water. 
and it's not for the run necessarily it's for the in case something happens on the run and i end up having to paddle i just don't want to have a come down moment when yeah, i'm yeah. in a situation where i need to hit, hit tap into energy totally totally yeah this is yeah, definitely from a safety standpoint i mean i always yeah. carry some just energy bars because you just never know what's going to happen yeah. But it's, yeah, it's a super interesting dive. And I think especially for foiling, like what we do is so, and I remember like when I was first getting into foiling, like you were just so limited by A, like your aerobic capacity and like when your legs are dying, because once your legs go, you're just like, well, I'm done. Like I got, but you can't keep going. So it was definitely helped me just spend more time in the water and trying to get on top of, I guess, the nutrition side of it all and training and it was, yeah, it was a super interesting diet for me and it's definitely changed how I've approached my diet, training, foiling, all of it. Like it's, it's so, so linked to all of it. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, all the data shows that it's intermittent fasting is incredibly good for you. And especially the, I used to do the 24 hour fast. I did one a week. I would always go Sunday to Monday. I should get back. Maybe that's what this inflection point in health for me right now with this cold is going to be, <laughs> get, get back onto that. Although I just have gone the other way and that... I'm actually being really, really healthy right now, like months of zero beer, zero alcohol. And, and I love beer. It's just like summertime, hanging out with the guys, drinking beers. But ever since hood, zero alcohol. And, but then I, for, for my birthday, I bought myself a Traeger, which is like the smoker. And it's just yeah, the best yeah. food ever. And so oh, man. once or twice a week, I'm like doing a brisket or short ribs or, and so I was like losing weight. I was down about 10 pounds. And now since we've got the Traeger, I'm back up like, I don't know, two or three pounds. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you gotta send me your brisket recipes and what you've been learning. We've got a smoker here and I've forever been like, I want to try a brisket. Oh, it's, so. it's, the, don't do it. <laughs> That's oh, really? the advice. <laughs> no, it's just so good. You're just going to want to do it all the time. You get fat. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah, it's so good. So we, good. we did our first smoked salmon. My wife's birthday was yesterday and, um, Ooh. did the whole like curing of salmon and smoke. It was really good. Man, that That's sounds good so good. Yeah. The smoke is a, it's a, it's a rabbit hole and it's certainly, man, it's so good, but it's so easy to put weight on. Yeah. That's a funny one. So let's talk States for a little bit with the training that you have yeah. done in with your sister really high intense cardio maybe not as much flow but that could be debated compared to downwind and compared to prone how do you equate the difference in states between the the physical chemical cocktail that happens through pushing yourself to the limit physically versus the mental of crazy conditions offshore downwinding and then the tapped in mental ocean meditation that happens there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually, cause I, I mean, it's actually interesting cause like flow state, <coughs> I was first introduced to on your podcast, like listening to your podcast for the years. Like I've always, that was where I learned about flow state. And at the time when I first started getting into foiling, I was doing a bit of rock climbing as well. That was my pre COVID obsession. And it was, there was a few moments like doing long multi-pitch routes where you're three, 400 meters up on a cliff face and you just have a little freak out, like your mind, whatever it is, like just having, and like, 
the concentration and I still haven't felt that level of concentration as I have with rock climbing in foiling, like that kind of fear for your life flow state where you just 100%, like I don't know, like with downwinding you are, you're definitely focused, but I think when the your life is at a different, or you feel like your life is threatened, I don't know if it's still flow state, you could probably tell me, but that was the most focused I've ever felt. Like where yeah. you feel, you feel fear for your life and you know that every movement, like your only way out is to keep moving up, but you just, that genuine just fear for your life. And I've never felt such a presence, I guess, than that, even with foiling. That makes sense. I mean, consequences is one of the biggest flow state multipliers. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, And I think that, yeah, like ever since I listened to your podcast and heard about that, like the whole flow state thing, it's made so much sense. And I think for me, it's more like mental health, like being able to get into, even for such a short period, a, a flow state mind where like to me, not have having researched into it or looked into it at all, like to me, flow state's just that, where you have complete separation, like you're hundred percent present. Like you're just so focused on the now that you're not focusing or thinking about anything else. You're just focused on what you're doing in that moment. And for me, it's just been that the mental health side of it. Like you just, even if it's for a fraction of a second that you can get into that flow state, I swear you come out of it so much clearer in your mind and you just feel better. I don't know what it is, but to me, that was always, the takeaway with foiling. Yeah. I mean, it's the meditative state. It's the alpha brainwaves, that Buddhist study where they, they strapped head monitors on brainwave monitors on Buddhist monks. And then they did it to athletes and some of the surfers and other kind of action sport athletes were hitting the same, sometimes higher levels of alpha brainwaves compared to the monks. It's like the two, two roots to the same, I guess, overall yeah, right. your place which is so incredible. And so it is, it is a scale. Like it's, it's, there's different levels of flow state. Yeah, no, I mean, there definitely are. I mean, I think that you, I mean, I play music, music and, and surfing have always been my two things. And music is definitely, you, you hit those states in music and the consequence. So like the one that you're going to hit in your bedroom playing acoustic guitar is different than the one you're going to hit when you're playing a show in front of lots of people because you're adding in consequence, not like you're going to get hurt, but stage fright and performance anxiety, yeah, all yeah. those things. And so some of those states, I actually still think that the deepest states that I have ever been in, I played in a punk band back when I was like 17, 18 years old. And some of those shows, I wouldn't even remember the whole show. I mean, we you, like, you get off stage and I couldn't remember what we played, anything, so the, the more intense ones. And um yeah Yeah, it's pretty wild i i tend to think about that in in regards to like is that something that you're born with the the desire to put yourself in those places or is that something that you that you've kind of like get exposure to and then you want to get back there and in in my case i had a go-kart i rebuilt a go-kart with my dad when i was like seven or eight years old and i was addicted to driving the cart it's all i wanted to do was drive and then it was skating and surfing and music and surfing and I mean do you have a similar history were you exposed to something at a young age that kind of grabbed you definitely surfing surfing gave me that and I, I remember it's actually interesting like when you say like the memory loss like there's so many some of the earlier moments where I could think would probably 
like waves that have consequence, like where you're getting barreled and there's a high consequence of if you fall. A lot of those waves, like I know some of them I remember vividly and other ones like totally blank, <coughs> which is super interesting. But, and I always attributed it to oh, a bit of an adrenaline junkie, like seeking a rush, but I get that same addiction, like with foiling, even when it's small and there is no consequence. Yep. I'm still as addicted to getting into that, I suppose, flow state. Yep. And I think that those are possibly different states to some level, right? When Laird was on the podcast, his comments on flow were really interesting. And where he has landed is that in those moments when you are operating outside of your comfort zone from a like a evolutionary biology standpoint, you need to be able to pick the moments that helped you get out of the situation. And so he thinks that that's why you remember snapshots and the snapshots of the barrel or the, the little things that you remember, the slowdown of time is really just like a way for your mind to process the important things so that the next time it happens, you have something there to go back to, which I thought was, was really cool. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, that's, yeah, like there are so many scenarios that get you into that that mindset but yeah i've never thought about yeah from an evolutionary standpoint it's a god the mind I tend is to, an interesting thing isn't it it's so crazy i tend to if i don't understand something like about the human body i tend to think like why would this be beneficial from like an evolutionary standpoint and generally speaking that is a an accurate framework to look at those questions through because you think like millions of years of of how we've come to be who we are it's not there's got to be some sort of methodology to how that all works yeah. and we understand yeah, totally. so little about it right now and i think that's the, like the most fascinating thing yeah 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 i mean you look at from an evolutionary standpoint like why are we so addicted to riding a craft on water it has no evolutionary gain to us but we're just so addicted so there's definitely something from an evolutionary standpoint there's a reason we're addicted to it well but it's obviously not the act of riding the, the, the wave it's there's something about that flow state that yep yeah it probably goes back to hunting yeah, yeah. i was just having yeah. this conversation with somebody about runner's high the other day to where i think runner's high is basically like back in the day we probably didn't run 20 miles at a clip. If we were, it was probably because something very bad was happening. And there's a point where your body just says, all right, well, let's just make him feel real good so he can get out of the situation. <laughs> oh, I like that. This is not natural. I second that. No, no. <laughs> there's nothing natural about it. I mean, it does, oh, the evolution, it does keep you, get the runners high, I spoke from an evolutionary standpoint, it, it keeps you fit and it, like maybe that's it. Like the body's kind of saying, yep, this is good. You should do this more. Keep training. You think? But, or I mean, do you think no. 2,000 years ago, people were like, I'm going to go run 20 miles to stay fit? No. Nah. I, <laughs> I mean, the shoes I back wonder. then. It was probably <laughs> oh, like the volcano so just erupted or the pack of lions was chasing you in this well. Yeah, yeah. Get, get out of here quick. Run. Oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. I like it. <laughs> Yeah. So what trips, well, actually, let me ask you this. Like, how do you guys keep going to Fiji all the time? It seems like every time I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm like looking at Instagram right now, I'm seeing 
your crew over on the Motu or Tavarua. And yeah, that's yeah, uh, so from Oz, it's, it's just oh, dude, the whole zone over there is just geared for foiling. It is such a good zone. There are so many little kind of crumbly reef breaks. There's any wind direction swirl, like somewhere is just super fun for foiling. And it's sort of like in the past, I guess, everyone's just gone to surf cloud break in restaurants. Like it's just been such a one track mind. Whereas foiling has totally unlocked that whole zone. Like wave, oh, I don't want to rattle them all off because there's so many, but there's just, there's so many zones that are really good for foiling and for beginners, any level, there's a good way for it. For us from Oz, it's only a like three and a half, four hour flight. So it's super close for us to, to get over there. We're Dylan, who I think he's sort of the island manager at Tavarua, is a Armstrong team rider and shredder. Yep. So he's, not the he's kind of been out. Yeah, he's an absolute legend. Such a good guy. So he's our connection there. So we, I think I'm heading back over in two weeks to have a week over there and just. Yeah, just test a bunch of the new, some of the new gear Armstrong's working, kind of. I got Army, Army's actually, I just got a text from him. He's on his way to my place at the moment. We've got a foil festival. It's called the Marimbula Classic that's going on. It's a, an old wind festival for windsurf, sup, kite, that foils have attached itself onto it and is now dominating the, uh, the, the event. So Army's on his way down at the moment and. I know as soon as he arrives, it's going to be an absolute mayhem of testing gear, riding. The guy is the guy is nonstop. He's he's such a good dude, but man, he does not switch off <laughs> when it comes to foil. Like we spent six weeks together in Hawaii, and it was like from the start to the very end, it was still just tech talk. And I, I mean, I loved it. I learned so much from hanging out with him. He seems to have such an incredible energy. Yeah. I love watching his, his tech talk, YouTube stuff, and when he gives presentations, seems like, and it was great to get to meet him while we were out there, and it yeah. feels very genuine. He he just loves it. Like, it is such a passion for him. Everything's a passion project. While we're in Hawaii, like, man, there's some long days just either testing gear, going back to developers or the designers, working through all the problem. Like, he just loves it whatever it is anything foil related he just loves it and it's just so to be around that sort of energy it's so infectious anytime you chat with him you learn something new you think about something in a different way and it just gets your mind going and it just keeps you motivated oh sick like that's, that was a good idea i want to try that now even just for tuning gear it just makes you so amped to go and test tails try different shims all that sort of stuff like mass position it's it's such a rabbit hole but the guy's got so much energy I love that. I really hope that our sport can stay for the next four or five years where the people driving the bigger brands, and I feel like we still are there right now, are truly passionate about the sport. I know at some point, you probably, some of these companies get bought up by bigger conglomerates and then some of that gets lost, but I hope it doesn't happen for a while. Yeah, totally. I think the foil community and everything around it's what's made it so unique for me anyway, like coming out of surfing Man, foilers are just, A, they're so accommodating, so frothy. Everyone's just happy to share information and all that. And and it does. Yep. It comes down from, I had the chance to work with Axis a little bit beforehand as well and a couple other brands. There's a lot of the big guys in these companies that 
absolutely froth it. Like they just love it. But there are, like you said, there are some of the other bigger brands that have, they've got kite brands behind them. They're large corporate corporations and there is a little bit more of a corporate structure to their development and their production, which to me, it loses that kind of, yeah, that, that stoke isn't there. It's a little bit, they're more finance. You feel like the decisions are more financially driven rather than trying to push the development. And I mean, is the total opposite where those downwind performance foils were never meant to be released. It was just, it was just something that he just dreamt of for ages. He's like, I've always wanted to try and put a section like this into a foil and I just haven't been able to make it work. This is the first time I reckon it can work. And all of a sudden we're prototyping a bunch of those and it does work. And like that's that creativity and just drive to try new things is what's progressing our sport. Yeah, I agree completely. I can't wait to feel those. Hopefully I'll get to, to test those at some point soon or somehow get to ride them. Yeah, but, definitely. Um, yeah. Well, this has been epic, Oscar. I know you got Army coming over, and I think I've hit my limit of how much I can talk before I start having spasms and coughing and ruin this thing. What do you want to leave folks with? The first off, this has been an epic. I'm so happy that we finally got to do this. It's a long time in the making. Uh, so thank you for coming on, and what do you want to leave folks with? Oh man, no, stoked to be on. This is, I've listened to all your podcasts from the very beginning. I mean, all those episodes with Kane, like how much I've learned from, from those podcasts, like in tuning gear, everything, like it's quite a, it can be quite a lonely journey when you're sort of first getting out there. I think the information's just getting better and better, but platforms like this, Instagram, YouTube, like everyone's sharing so much information and yeah, I think if I could leave everyone with anything, just keep helping each other. Like you see other foilers help them out, say hello in the car park. And if they're struggling with something, push them in the right direction. That's what kind of makes this community what it is. Yeah, I could not agree more. It, it feels it feels like we're still a part of something very special. I love that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, epic. Oscar, thank you. You've been an inspiration. It was actually a really inspirational. I, I meant to say it earlier, but I came home from the hood trip um, having watched you and Jeremy and some of the lines you were drawn at the hatch one day and took that on and, and changed a lot of the stuff that I was doing, like on little bumps and just awesome. So thank you. Oh, man, for that. to hear. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Look uh, forward to the next session. Hopefully we don't have to wait till Hood River next year, but if not, let's try and get over a week earlier, have a few barbecues and get everyone together. Yeah. Maybe go out earlier next year. I think I want to do that. Yeah. Spend a little time there and yeah, that sounds good. Killer. We'll send it. Have a great day, and thanks for coming on. Appreciate it, man. Yes, thanks to be here. Enjoy getting the water. Hopefully that sickness clears soon. This is the Progression Project Podcast. Deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen.